The Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. And they, that being Jesus and the disciples, came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Verse 19 was where we left off the last time we were together in Mark, and I didn't make it to verse 19, which I was kind of glad about, because even in my previously prepared message that contained that passage, I was just basically kind of going to read it and wrap it up, because there just wasn't anything there in my estimation. And so then it was just convenient that we were out of time, and so I cut everything there. And I was planning to begin in verse 20, which is a brand new pericope this morning. But over the two-week interim there, something was nagging me about verse 19. And so I'd go back and I'd read it again and go, yeah, okay, right, nothing there. All right, just kind of finishes up the story. But then I was hit with 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness and reproof. So I'm like, okay, I know, I've said it myself many times, that God just doesn't put things in the Bible to fill space. And so I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, it's, it's not really just filling space. It's kind of bringing that story to a nice, sort of way of ending it. It makes a segue into the next passage. But I was challenged by a book that I'm currently reading by Timothy Keller, which has nothing to do with this in particular, but just the idea of sitting and meditating on a verse, which was a a discipline that I used to practice many, many years ago when I was a baby Christian. And so I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I looked at it for a few minutes, and I was like, yeah, nope. Okay, let's move along. But no, I can't. So I said, okay, Lord, what am am I supposed to do with this? I know it's not just filler. I know it's not just a segue into the next passage. Why did you deem it necessary to put, whenever evening came, they being Jesus and the disciples would go out of the city? Well, as I was meditating on it, I started thinking, okay, evening came. What happens when evening comes? The sun sets. What happens when the sun sets? Duh, it gets dark. And when the darkness came, Jesus and the disciples left. And my mind went immediately to Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And darkness was over the face of the deep, if you remember the narrative there at the very beginning, the very beginning of the Bible. The world was tohu vabohu in the Hebrew, meaning it was just void and without form is the way it's translated. 
And God said, but let there be light. And he saw that it was good. So the darkness is dispelled. And again, my mind is sitting there thinking about this whole idea of light, and my mind went back to high school physics class, remembering that darkness isn't a thing. I mean, dark, it's, it's not, you can't, I can't present you a package of darkness and go, here, be careful when you open it. Okay. I can't say, hey, you know what, come, come here. Come over with, to the corner here with me. I'm going to show you some darkness. It just doesn't work that way. Light, on the other hand, is a thing if you remember your high school physics. Light is a packet of energy called a photon. And light contains of just bazillions of photons that we call light. So darkness isn't a thing, but light is. And the point is, you can't see darkness. You might say, no, yeah, you can't. No, you can't. There is nothing to see with darkness. What you see is merely the absence of light. (laughs) And now what do I do? I blow out the light. And hope that my phone works. (laughs) Darkness is all or nothing. We might at first disagree with that by saying something like, well, it's not as dark, even here in this auditorium, the closer you get to the back of the auditorium. But that's linguistically imprecise. What would be precise is to say that it's lighter in the back, and so it seems darker up front but only because some light is trickling through which displaces the darkness. So now think of this. I said that darkness isn't a thing. So it cannot overtake or it can't extinguish the light, which is a thing. Again, light is a packet of energy called a photon. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce some photons, that is some light, into the darkness up here. If I don't break my neck trying to find it. Oh. Welcome the photons. <laughs> so now we see that it's not quite as dark up here as it was. And you know what? I defy anyone. I defy anyone to diminish or remove that light only using darkness. You can't do it. What you can do is you can diminish the presence of light, and that will increase the darkness, which is, again, the absence of light. The only way to increase or to maintain darkness is to eliminate light. Let me say that again. The only way to increase or maintain darkness is to eliminate light. Hmm. Voila. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And it was so. And it was good.
John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, John 1.1 1, 1 starts. Even though we are now in the New Testament and we are thousands and thousands of years up front from what I read at the beginning in Genesis 1, in the beginning now was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So just a warning here. Head explosion alert. Think of this message as a quilt of truth. You know how quilts are made. You make little pieces, and then you get all these pieces, and you then kind of sew them together, and you make basically a blanket. You make a quilt out of it. So for this to, to work better than I hope it's going to work, think of this in that way. All right, let's see what we got up here. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Let's get up John 1.1. All right, I warned you, this is a head explosion alert, all right? And this isn't just an, an, an exercise uh, in academics, or at least I certainly hope not. What we see up here is the Greek from John 1.1, Enarche ein halogos, kai logos ein proston, theen kai, theos ein halogos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in our English language, we have a little bitty word, and a couple of words, actually, that we call articles. One is called an indefinite article, and that would be the letter A. And if, there's, if the word starts with a vowel or a vowel sound, we use the, the word an, A-N. But then we have what's called the definite article, which is the. So definite article, the, indefinite article, A, or an. What's the significance of that? Actually, it's quite important. Um, if I said to somebody, okay, grab me a pencil, okay, here's the pencil. I use the indefinite article, kind of a cheesy little illustration here, but hope it helps. By virtue of my saying, grab me a pencil, if there were several pencils laying around, it wouldn't matter which one they grabbed, okay? It's indefinite, just a pencil, any pencil will work. But if I say, on the other hand, grab me the pencil, now I have a specific pencil in mind that's definite. Okay, That's the difference between indefinite article and definite article. Now, what we need to know is that in the Greek language, in the biblical Greek language, they have only one word, which is the definite article, but they have an indefinite article, but it's invisible. No, I'm serious. Okay, and this is where I hope this helps. Okay, this little letter here, which is an Omicron, it's got a little what's called a soft breather mark. It's pronounced ha, logos, God was the word. Okay, that's a definite article. That's a definite article in the Greek. That's a definite article. But now look in front of God, and God was the Word. There is nothing in front of God. There's no definite article, which means that it could be translated indefinitely, meaning instead of God as in God Almighty, it could mean God, small g, like a God. But that particular rule of grammar in the Koine Greek 
is, again, only a rule that is often the case, but it's not necessarily the case in which context has, has to help us understand what it, whether it's indefinite or whether it's definite. And you're saying, where in the world are you going with this? I know. Stay with me. I don't know how familiar you are with Jehovah's Witness theology, but where they stumble on the person of Jesus, which is where all religions stumble that are not true, is on the person of Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is not the God, not God Almighty, but rather he is a God. Now, where do they get that from? They get that from John 1.1, because they say there is no definite article in front of Theos, God. Therefore, it says that Jesus was a God, small g. Now, there are problems with that, as we're going to see. The first problem at this is that this interpretation by them is disingenuous. And I say that because only five verses later in John 1.1, we have three other examples of the word God being used without any article in the Greek, meaning that, it, that they should translate it then indefinitely as a small g, as a god and not the god. Well, let's look at it. There came a man sent from God, no article in the Greek, so it should be sent from a god whose name was John. He came to his own, and those who were, were, were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, children of God Almighty, not a God, because there's no definite article there. If we're going to be consistent, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but again of God, no definite article. So they should say, based on what they've already said about Jesus, is those would all have to be translated indefinitely. So it's a problem. Because again, they use each one of these instances written by the same author, even in the same pericope, they use the anarthris form for God. Anarthris simply means they are using it without, uh, there is no article. That's what an without arthris article means. So there is no article, so they should be translating it that way, but they don't there. They only do it when Jesus is mentioned. So again, the Jehovah's Witnesses' own acknowledgement of this, and by the way, this is from the, their New World Translation. Okay, This is absolutely fair and absolutely ironclad. By their own standard of interpretation, in verse 1, they make Jesus not the God, but a God, a small g God. And yet in those remaining verses, the next three verses in, in that same passage, they're back-to-back -back with the exact same grammatical construction, and yet they choose to interpret them as if they have the definite article, which they do not. Let me put this more simply. In one verse regarding Jesus, they insist that he is not the God, but simply a God. And yet, when the same syntax is used, they let the context determine that it is referring to the God, that is God Almighty, and not just a God, small g. Well, let's continue in John. John says, all things came into being through Jesus. That's verse 3. And apart from him, Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. 
Well, how could that be if Jesus himself only came into being at the incarnation, which again is what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Well, he's, he's the son of God. So he's, he's divine, but he's not divine like God the Father. Well, but wait, Jesus, as we know, didn't come into existence at the incarnation. He is fully God because he was there at the very beginning of creation. And God said, let us, plural. Well, who is us? Let us make man in our image and likeness. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. Well, John tells us something more about Jesus, which is illuminating, pun intended. In Jesus, we're told in John 1, verse 4 and 5, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not, in the original, did not catalumbano it. And the reason, I, again, I'm not trying to just be cute here or to, to be academic, but I'm showing you that there is hermeneutical substance to understanding the Word of God, and part of my goal is always to teach you how to read the Word and understand it properly and rightly divide it. So, catalambano, well, what does that word mean? Well, if you read uh, a dozen translations, there's quite a few different ways that it's translated, and frankly, all of them together are right. No single one is actually right all by itself. So, what does the word mean? Well, again, let's remember that darkness isn't a thing. So darkness cannot it cannot seize, it cannot conquer, it cannot overtake, it cannot overcome, it cannot comprehend, and it cannot extinguish light. Those are all different words that are used in the translation of Catalambano. It can't get rid of light. That's why I said when I turn the lamps on up here, I defy anybody to, to now extinguish the light by using the darkness. Can't do it. We go down to John chapter 9. Jesus said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 9, 5. So let's stay on John's thoughts about light and darkness. Jesus comes into the world and Jesus' very presence, just his presence before he has even said anything, Jesus comes into the world, and by his presence, he exposes things that are hidden in darkness. What is the very last thing that somebody who is trying to stay hidden under cover of darkness wants to be confronted by? Somebody with a flashlight. They don't want to be confronted by light. Because light is revealing. When I was uh, at Fort Polk, Louisiana, in 1972, training to go to war in Vietnam, by God's grace, they didn't send me. So we're there in the swamps, and we had part of our training was called escape and evasion. And what it was is they take us out in the middle of the night, and they throw us out in the woods somewhere with big fields and woods and cover and no cover and everything else. And we had to just simply go. Here, this was all we had to do. We had to go from point A to point B that was probably several miles. And we had to get there without being captured. There were 
fake enemy, okay, drill sergeant, drill instructors and everything, else, who were out there in the woods and they were all there to capture us, to simulate, you know, trying to escape and evade the enemy in a case of combat where you get separated or whatever. So here's the way it ran. So, so we're there and you've, got to, you've only got, I think it was maybe two hours to get from point A to point B and that wasn't easy to do with just lollygagging. So as you're moving across, you, you, you'd get out of the woods and you'd see a nice wide open space, like maybe a couple hundred yard, 300 yard long field. Well, you can make tracks in the field, right? And again, you need to keep moving to make the deadline or you go to POW camp and if you get caught, you go to a, a mock-up POW camp where the rumors were it was not a nice experience because they're trying to get you ready for all that. So here we are, we come to this first field, and again, it's not like you're with a bunch of people. You can, you can go any way you want, you're by yourself, or you're with some whatever. And I, I was always a loner, I don't know why. So I'm out there, and I'm like, field, sprint time, boogalooing, and guess what they did? They shot up flares. And if you've never seen military flares, I mean, it turns the darkness into daylight. And my first experience, I'm out in the field, and it's like, ah! I mean, I am just, not naked literally, but naked and bare, exposed to the world, so to speak, which means all the enemy, can, you know, that are out there to capture me, they can see me. So it's like, ah! So I go flat, belly down, trying to nestle down in the weeds and wait till the flare goes down and subsides, which it did. Nobody apparently saw me. I didn't get caught. As soon as the flare went out and the light was gone, the darkness returned. I was up again, boogalooing, and this time when a flare would go up, I made sure I was by the edge of the clearings so that I could go into the trees and still remain covered. I did make it, by the way, without being caught. Yay, me. All right, let's see. What was that all about? I have no idea. Yes, light exposes darkness. It does so literally, and it does so metaphorically. John 3.19, going forward, here's what we read. This is the judgment. Now understand, this is in chapter 3 of John. Meaning what? Meaning John 3.16, everybody knows, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever did not perish have everlasting life. Okay. I'm just telling, giving you a little bit of context here because all of a sudden, three verses later, we read, this is the judgment that light capital L, has come into the world. Meaning, light brings judgment. Okay, another little piece of that quilt. Well, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. That's verse 19. But wait a minute, two verses earlier, John 3.17, this is what we read. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Huh? Jesus' purpose in coming was not to judge the world, but to save it. And verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. So everyone who believes on him, we understand, is saved. So Jesus didn't come to judge the world. There's no conflict here. There's no Bible contradicting itself. Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but the inherent, inescapable nature of light is that light exposes darkness. Light cannot not 
expose and dispel the dark. But because of the inescapable and unalterable nature of light, exposing darkness, verse 18, the rest of verse 18 in John 3, he who does not believe in Jesus has been judged already. That is, he's been exposed by the light already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So given the nature of Jesus as both the life of men and the light of men, here is the truth about light, about Jesus. The light has come into the world, referring to Jesus, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Okay. What happened to Mark 11:19? We're there. The light and the life of men just came, remember? Verse 19 is in the context of Jesus coming to the temple and cleaning house. The light of men just came and exposed the darkness of the obstinate souls at the temple. And the light dispelled the darkness physically and metaphorically. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him. That's the verse before 19. Meaning that they were seeking to dispel the light so when physical darkness settled on the city, the light of the world and his crew removed the light, allowing the darkness to take the city because they loved darkness because their deeds were evil. Back to John 3.18. So when evening came, meaning darkness fell, the light of the world and the crew left. In the absence of light, there is darkness. So the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day and those just given to evil were being exposed by the very presence of Jesus because, again, that is what light does. John 3.21 But whoever practices the truth comes to the light. Those who are evildoers shun the light. Those who practice the truth come to the light. They're not afraid of the light. And in fact, they even seek the light out so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The verb there, whoever practices the truth, intense voice and mood, and parsing the verb as it's called, is a present active indicative. It's not a one-time occurrence. It means that is an ongoing habitual pattern, meaning those who practice the truth, not like they stumbled on it once and they did a good thing and then they reverted back or whatever, but as a way of habitual lifestyle, their, their, their very desire and passion is to practice, to do consistently what is true according to God. Just this week on Thursday, I don't know if you know about the uproar concerning the gains 
how many fixer-upper show do fans do we have in here? I mean, they're, they're a wildly popular show on HGTV. And Chip and Joanne, if you've ever seen them, they're just the cutest, stinking little couple. And they are God-loving Christians, Bible-believing Christians. And they don't say a word about God on the show, but they just exude it in their relationship to each other and to their peep, their clients and to their children and their family. Well, scandal of scandals. On BuzzFeed, which is a website, blog, I don't know what you want to call it, gossip column, somebody discovered that they, as Christians, go to a Christian church. Yes! So here it starts. And somebody obtained a sermon of the pastor who dared in this Christian church to teach the Christian view of marriage. Yes, another scandal. And so now Chip and Joanne, because they go to that church, are in the hot seat by HGTV. Oh, yeah. And if you know anything at all about HGTV's past, you might remember Jason and David Benham. They were, again, Christian twins, brothers, who had another fix-up-the-house kind of show. And, of course, it came out that they were Christians, and they believed what Christians have to believe, which is the Bible, and they were yanked from the show by the always tolerant and open-minded. When evening came, Mark eleven nineteen, they would go out of the city. A big, fat metaphor with multiple facets, the most obvious being that light and darkness cannot coexist. The godless religionists of Jesus' day determined to eliminate the light of the world, but darkness can't overtake the light. It can't conquer the light. It can't, it can't extinguish the light. Only light can be extinguished by removing light. Darkness can't do anything about that. It just shows up when there is no light. And people left to their own ideas, left to their own thoughts, left to to their own worldview are unnerved when there is any kind of real or even perceived intrusion that suggests or implies that there just may be a better way than theirs or that they may be wrong or that they are wrong. And sadly, most people sitting in darkness don't even know that they are until the Lord moves and opens their eyes to the light. We now go back to another gospel writer, Matthew, in chapter 4. We're on the, for context, we're on the heels in Matthew 4 where Satan just had Jesus out in the wilderness and, and brought the three temptations to him. And of course, he just came through those. Matthew borrows after the, right after this the prophecy from Isaiah about the coming hope. Jesus just conquered 
Satan in the temptations in the wilderness. And the people who were sitting in darkness, Matthew writes, quoting Isaiah, saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save it. But not to save it so that we can do whatever we want, whatever we have determined is right and good and true. Verse 16 and 17 of Matthew 4, And from that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. Repent means admit you're wrong, say you're sorry. And that's a good start, but that's not all. Repent means to do all that and then turn and go. You were going in the wrong direction. Turn around and now go in the right direction, God's direction, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the religious leaders of the day and the rest who could not see the light of the world The cleansing of the temple was the last straw and perhaps the last attempt on the part of God to shock the proudly and the waywardly religious. They had no idea that they were about to put to death the one and the only one who had the cure to their eternally lethal disease called sin. For such is what it means to be lost. Is there anyone in here this morning who is lost? Still playing with the Holy One of Israel. Still living as though you are in charge of your life. God help you and God open your eyes if you think the bumper sticker which says, God is my co-pilot is a good take on the life of faith. Because I have news for you. God is not the co-pilot. God had better be the pilot and the co-pilot and the navigator. And if he isn't, you know the singular reason why your life is a wreck. Oh, the irony. Do you get it? God is my co-pilot on the crashed car. Right. And if God is your co-pilot in your life, if you haven't crashed yet, there's a tree right in front of you. He allows us to be, in fact, God invites us to be, to use a cheesy kind of, kind of metaphor to keep the metaphor going of God as the pilot. He invites us to be the flight attendants to serving people little bags of peanuts and soft drinks at $5 a can. And, oh, sorry. God had better be the pilot, not the co-pilot of our lives. The darkness cannot conquer and defeat the light in any way, shape, or form. Thanks be to God for the babe born in Bethlehem who said, I am the life and the light of the world. Let's stand. Actually, do I have a prayer for service? I forgot to even check. Elder here, elder, elder, elder. Nope, okay. Father in heaven, 
thank you that in the baffling majesty of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son took that role upon himself for no other reason than to come on our behalf and to conquer the darkness so that we could live in light of the light of the world and to be with you in that light for all eternity. Father in heaven, if there is anyone here today who's playing a game with you or who's not even close to being there at all and knows it, May your spirit pierce their soul and compel them to see the love that you have poured out for them, desiring that no one perish. In Jesus' name, 